This is Soul Searching, Gay Essay Radio's show of the year in 2016. Here, we explore all spiritual, psychological and wellness matters that matter. I'm Tom Budge. Searching deep into the soul requires that we conduct a penetrating self-examination of our motives, convictions and attitudes so that we might challenge our personal beliefs and thoughts to open our minds to fresh ideas and free thinking. I'm comfortable asking awkward questions. I love poking holes in rigid belief systems and I thrive on querying the way the world taught us to think. Healthy debate is enriching, so please use digital media to share your insights with me. My intention is clear. I'll never ask you to give up what is sacred to you. I'll never insist that you adopt my beliefs and opinions. I do recommend, however, that you use some of these concepts to redesign your life for the better. How you do that is up to you, isn't it? Our show's title today is Tainted Lives. The Devastating Effects of Child Sexual Exploitation There are fewer crimes in society that trigger greater public outrage than the sexual exploitation of children. For some, it conjures up memories of horrific television documentaries showing how children are sexually trafficked for commercial gain. For others, it brings back childhood events of shameful sexual conduct with much older persons. Race gender, ethnicity or socio-economic standing does not prevent the sexual exploitation of children. It happens across the human social spectrum. The effects of sexual abuse linger into the person's adult life, giving birth to many physical and psychological troubles. We need to examine this phenomenon a bit closer before losing our empathy, sticking our heads into the sand and pretending that this isn't a real big deal by saying it only happens in some parts of Asia, South America and Africa, so why worry? In my decade and a half as a hypnotherapist, I've seen many cases of clients who were sexually abused as children. Roughly around one-third of my female clients and about one-fifth of my male clients were sexually abused before the age of 14. This is a biased statistic, of course, as it only draws these guesses from a predominantly affluent Caucasian client base. The actual figures are far worse. The horrendous effects of sexual abuse leave long-lasting scars on the children's physical and mental well-being. These are scars that are often visible even when the children are mature adults. There is a statistical curve to child sexual abuse beginning as early as aged one or two, increasing steadily until it peaks around the age of 12 to 14 before tailing off again. Child sexual abuse becomes rape only after the child reaches the age of consent, which here in South Africa is at the tender age of 16, even though a child only legally becomes an adult at the age of 18. This puts pubescent children most at risk. When it comes to family structures and living arrangements, one that leads most often to child sexual abuse is when a single parent lives with his or her partner. Next, at half the risk, is when a child is parentless. There are many ways to survey the situation and another is to gather risk statistics for different groups of children. The largest group of at-risk children are runaway, thrown away or homeless children, 
who survive by selling sex to acquire food, shelter, clothing, and other things needed to survive. Child sexual exploitation runs across all groupings, although children from poor families appear to be at higher risk of commercial sexual exploitation. There is the real risk of acquiring sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV and AIDS. There is also the serious risk of physical damage and disfigurement. But the psychological damage is the hidden part of the iceberg. Sleeping and eating disorders, helplessness, guilt, shame and humiliation, shock, denial and disbelief, disorientation and confusion, and a host of anxiety disorders including PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, phobias, panic attacks, depression and mood changes. Then there is the sinister risk of traumatic bonding, known as the Stockholm Syndrome, which causes victims to develop sympathetic sentiments towards their captors, often sharing their opinions and acquiring romantic feelings for them as a survival strategy. Captors exert coercive control over their victims, instilling fear, yet expecting gratitude for allowing them to live or for any other perceived favours the perpetrator bestows upon them, no matter how small that might be. There are two main branches of child sexual abuse, private and commercial exploitation. Trafficking of children is the fastest growing and most lucrative enterprise worldwide, and Cape Town and its surrounding regions have been identified as a world center for it. Many countries, People and organizations do a lot to counter commercial sexual exploitation, but there is a lot more that can be done too. The modern, predominantly worldview of commercial sexual exploitation of minors is that of a young girl prostitute. This perception tends to focus on the plight of women and young girls, while young boys are left out in research, policy and practice. Yet studies show that sexual exploitation equally affects boys and transgendered youth too. They are a high-risk, often overlooked, hidden population. The United Nations Office on Drug and Crime reported in 2012 on the international prevalence of child sexual abuse, saying that of every three child victims, two are girls and one is a boy. While most of us are familiar with the conventional pimp who preys upon and kidnaps children off the streets, this is not typically how children enter the life of prostitution. As abused children age, they may rent accommodation with several others in the life, expecting the younger ones to work for them in exchange for shelter and room to sleep. There is also a situation in some families where parents pimp out their kids to support their drug addiction. These kids enter the system for various reasons, but the underlying reasons are that they come from homes where they are subject to multiple traumas in their childhood, like sexual abuse, substance abuse, or domestic violence. In some cases, youth are asked to leave home because of gender identification issues too. Many youths enter the life of prostitution between the ages of 11 to 14, but their sexual exploitative situation can usually be traced back to the ages of 6 to 10, as documented cases of child abuse. Moreover, in family-controlled exploitation situations, the pimp, 
can often be a child's mother or grandmother who tells the youth, we all make money together. We're in this household and we all have to contribute. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, the term paedophile is defined as someone who is sexually interested in children, but there is confusion between the terms paedophilia and child molestation, which are used in different ways, even by professionals. Paedophilia usually refers to an adult psychological disorder characterized by a preference for prepubescent children as sexual partners. This preference may or may not be acted upon. The term hebophilia is sometimes used to describe adult sexual attractions to adolescents or children who have reached puberty. Whereas paedophilia and hebophilia refer to psychological propensities, child molestation and child sexual abuse are used to describe actual sexual contact between an adult and someone who has not yet reached the legal age of consent. In this context, the latter individual is referred to as a child, even though he or she may be a teenager. Pedophiles and hebophiles are not always obscure old men and women who stalk children, but they also come from the ranks of celebrities too. Many well-known people were convicted and jailed from child molestation. Some were acquitted, while others were not prosecuted at all because of mitigating circumstances like Woody Allen, who sexually molested his adopted daughter. Others are Mike Tyson, the professional boxer, Ian Watkins, former frontman of the Welsh rock group Lost Prophets, Roman Polanski, the famed movie director, Will Hayden, star of Sons of Guns, Michael Jackson, the king of pop, and let's not forget about Rolf Harris, an Australian entertainer whose career encompassed work as a musician, singer-songwriter, composer, comedian, actor, and painter and television personality. He was jailed on 12 counts of indecent assault on four female victims, then aged between 8 and 19. Ironically, in 1985, Harris took part in a short British educational documentary called Kids Can Say No, intended to teach children how to avoid sexual abusive situations, how to escape such situations, and how to find help if they are abused. Harris's campaign against paedophilia in this movie can be seen in retrospect as either monumental self-delusion or a sign of deep self-lacerating guilt. Pedophiles can be anyone, young or old, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, professional or not, and they come from all races too. They work to master their manipulative skills and often unleash them on troubled children by first becoming their friend and building the child's self-esteem and confidence. They may refer to the child as special or mature, appealing to their need to be heard and understood, then entice them with adult-type activities that are often sexual in content, such as viewing pornography or posing scantily dressed for a photograph. Pedophiles may also offer their victims alcohol or drugs to hamper their ability to resist activities or to smudge the memory of the events that occurred. Members of disliked minority groups are often stereotyped as representing a danger to the majority's most vulnerable members. For example, 
Jews in the Middle Ages were accused of murdering children babies in ritual sacrifices. Black men in the United States were often lynched after being falsely accused of raping white women. In a similar fashion, gay people have often been portrayed as a threat to children. There is a fresh resurgence of irate, Bible-punching pastors who use the words homosexual and pedophile as if they were synonyms. They are not. Some homosexuals are pedophiles, just as their heterosexual counterparts are also. Sadly, according to a Mayo Clinic report, heterosexual pedophiles have on average abused 5.2 children and committed an average of 34 sexual acts, versus homosexual pedophiles who have on average abused 10.7 children and committed an average of 52 acts. Pedophiles who engage in child sex tourism, CST, typically travel from their home countries to developing countries to participate in commercial sex acts with children. The crime is fueled by weak law enforcement, social media, ease of travel and poverty. Situational abusers do not intentionally leave to seek sex with a child, but will take sexual advantage of children once they are in the country. Preferential child sex abusers travel expressly to exploit children in the foreign country. What on earth goes awry in an adult's mind to motivate this kind of behavior with children? Psychotherapist Ronnie Weisberg-Ross gives this insight. Studies show that between 30 to 70% of young sexual abusers and 10 to 22% of adult sexual abusers have themselves been sexually abused. This may be a form of an acquired interpersonal relationship style developed to cope with the childhood abuse. Children who were abused are, through their experience, taught to abuse as a way of communicating and connecting with others. Their abusers often become role models for their own behavior. Almost no one consciously sets out to become abusive. The behavior is handed down over the generations because it is learned behavior. It becomes instinctive and the abuser may not know any other way to behave. Thus, as perceived by them, abuse can be a natural way to communicate and release the anxiety surrounding the original abuse. It is a way to turn the tables and finally have a sense of power or control in their intimate relationships later on in life. Abused children grow up with low self-esteem. Many feel inadequate. They wonder if they deserve being abused. Oftentimes, their abuser convinces them that they deserve the abuse while simultaneously telling them that they love them. Deep down, abuse survivors don't believe that they deserve a healthy, loving relationship, even if they know what this looks like. They carry lots of anger about what happened to them. The world is not a fair place. Their defense systems, while initially traumatized, may now have become overreactive. Psychology today describes it this way. Victim identity is focus on damages suffered at the hands of other people. The victim's desire to be identified as a victim creates a sense of entitlement and provides a motive to devalue anyone who does not offer special recognition and validation of victim status or compensation for it. 
There are many adults who were abused as children who would like to get recognized as having been a victim of abuse. Why? Because they seek sympathy and understanding from others around them. The hope is to foster a nurturing understanding and compassionate interaction between them. This, however, is often impossible to do. Any disclosure of victimization as a child may lead to witch hunts, police involvement, and other social and legal hardships. So victims often hide their identity. It's safer that way. But the need for recognition and compensation is strong, and the line blurs between emotional reactivity and the need for victim protection, and it can push the abused to become the abuser. The same article in Psychology Today has this to say. Abuse victims, like anyone in relationships with high emotional reactivity, build automatic defense systems, which include preemptive strikes. If you expect to be criticized, stonewalled or demeaned, you may as well be the first to do it. Victims who carry a lot of emotions can easily develop a reactive narcissism that makes them seem aloof, intolerant, and they may even come across as abusers. Let me share a few examples of how child sexual abuse affects some people because it'll help you to understand their plight and if you are a person who was or is being abused as a child, it'll help you to put context to some of your behavior patterns and to explain some of the reasons behind what you do. These are the stories of some people who came to seek my therapeutic help. I naturally keep their identification secret. The first is of two women, both of whom are outwardly functional, socially adept individuals. Both own their own businesses. One is married and the other is not. Both are morbidly obese. One of them came to see me about her weight and the other sought my help to set aside her past and reclaim a sense of place and purpose in the world. During our respective conversations, the truth emerged that they had been repeatedly sexually molested as children one from puberty and the other from a very, very young age. There is the law of predominant emotional motivators. It's best to describe it as a seesaw with opposite forces acting against each other. Pressing down on the seat of positivity is the normal motivation experienced by most people. This positive motivation keeps one looking good, being healthy, feeling whole and complete, having a good social group of friends, and being loved and cherished by one's family. If there was no force on the seesaw's negative seat, only the slightest positive motivation would tip the seesaw in the direction of positivity. Indeed, many people have no trouble finding the motivation to exercise routinely, eat healthily, dress sexily, and integrate well with family and friends. It's our social norm. However, When another stronger emotional force bears down on the seesaw's negative seat, the seesaw tips the other way, resulting in binge eating, hiding oneself away, becoming socially phobic, falling into slovenly behavior, and even dressing more frumpishly. The people who need to use a little positive force to tip the seesaw towards positivity don't always understand why those with a seesaw tipped the opposite way behave the way they do. When the seesaw tips towards negative behavior, it can only be remedied in one of two ways, either by adding more force to the positive side 
or by reducing the force on the negative side. Much of the therapy aimed at addressing weight management issues targets the building of positive motivation. These include visualizations of a slimmer you, healthier diets, counting calories, and a whole lot more. Group workshops add to the positive motivation by creating peer pressure to conform, and it is here where one is likely to get a thumbs up for achieving one's goal. If one builds enough incentive, the seesaw will tip positively. But the big question is, can you hold it there? You might remember from our New Year's resolution show that one of the prerequisites to changing habits is to make sure that your goal is believable, achievable, and most importantly, sustainable. It takes some strong willpower and concerted effort over an extended period of time to keep the positive outweighing the negative. Many people just can't sustain it and relapse. It takes only a little extra negativity, like a work crisis or some other disaster, to add that smidgen of force to the negative side, causing the seesaw to tip back. This is particularly important to realize when trying to resolve issues that stem from childhood sexual abuse. It is vital to focus attention on the negative motivators because resolving them becomes the key to long-term success. One often finds erroneous beliefs that underpin the negative motivational force. Here's a typical example of some of the subconscious chatter that builds momentum for failure. If I'm nice to people, they might think that I'm being flirtatious. Yet any sexual advance from the other person will remind me of my past and frighten me. It's best, therefore, that I don't make eye contact with anyone here today. What about this bit of internal subconscious dialogue? If I dress sexily, I'll attract unwanted sexual attention, so it's best that I dress more frumpishly and allow myself to be more slovenly and unattractive. What these statements really mean is this. The heavier and uglier I become, the safer I feel. That's a tragic statement to make, but it's a statement that encourages negative, self-abusive behavior. It takes months of therapy to eradicate old beliefs as one builds a new solid base. Surgery, medicine and positive motivation is useful, but limited because it is prone to relapse. Reframing one's childhood sexual abuse must be done to make sustainable changes in life. But obesity is only one of many consequences of child sexual abuse. Another sad one is when the molestation interferes with one's normal sexual functioning. Past abuse can leave one frigid or impotent as an adult. It accounts for some erectile dysfunction and can cause phobias around intimacy. This can play havoc with one's sexual relationships later on in life. Yet another tragic consequence of child sexual abuse is the self-loathing and destructive self-mutilation that some develop. A common erroneous belief that underpins this kind of behavior is I can only blame myself for what happened. I should have been braver and spoken out more. I should have screamed for help. I got so sexually aroused and that encouraged the perpetrator to continue doing it. I am a disgusting, promiscuous beast hated by God. I am so soiled that there is no more hope in life for me. Phew. 
Here's another interesting case of mine. A very handsome, confident young gay man came to seek some help. He was smitten with guilt, shame and embarrassment because of what started shortly after puberty and which lasted for another decade. He had had multiple raunchy sexual encounters with a few of his male relatives, with one of his teachers and with a spiritual mentor, a priest in fact. I easily understood this young man's predicament. But, as he told his story, I silently pondered why he had never said no to any of them or why he had not called for help. Was this the cause of his guilt, shame and embarrassment? Was his homosexuality a factor that enticed the older men or was it a source of inner confusion that left him bewildered about himself and thus unable to seek help? <clears throat> I have a personal reference for this and could readily sympathize with him. As a young gay man growing up in a Jehovah's Witness household, I found myself between a rock and a hard place because, although I desperately wanted to talk to someone about my sexual inclinations, I knew that I couldn't because I would have to either deny my homosexuality after that to stay inside the church or else disclosure without change would have had me expelled from the organization. Back then, I believed I had no choice but to remain silent and self-reconcile. Might there be a parallel in this young man's life too? Then, his story took an unexpected turn which left me rebooting my thought processes. It was not the adult men that had seduced the boy. It was the other way around. As the boy awoke to his sexuality, he went out of his way to get close to the older men. He directed his affections to seduce them. Furthermore, his love of these men is still very strong and they still share close ties with each other to this day. He loves them dearly. He told me, There were teachers that taught me mathematics, languages and science, but these men taught me how to love and to be intimate. He also added, My guilt, shame and embarrassment does not come from what we did together, but comes from what they must be feeling about themselves. They might be thinking of themselves as paedophiles, but I want them to know that they never were. I know what society expects from adults when it comes to sexual exploitation of children, and I agree with it. These men, possibly without knowing the full context of the boy's background, went ahead and had sex with him. That must carry culpability. However, and herein lies the conundrum, how do we teach our children about the birds and the bees? Are they to learn through observation and mimicry as they do with nearly every other aspect of life? Most adults shy away from sex education, leaving it up to biology teachers to convey the rudiments of reproduction to the kids. What happens in the townships where parents and young children occupy the same room? The parents must copulate, but I have no idea how it is done to maintain that fine line of what is proper and what is not. I, like so many other children, fumbled my way through sexual self-discovery. Was this young gay boy wrong to seek the sexual attention of the older men in his life? I would love to get your opinion about this situation and I'll give you contact details in a moment or two. 
For those who escaped sexual abuse as a child, we may never truly know the full extent of damages it does to the victims of child sexual abuse. A few things are certain. As an abused child, you never, ever made a mistake. It was never, ever your fault. Adults are meant to be the leaders, and even if it was your idea to seduce an adult into having sex with you, it was still not your fault. The adult should have declined and walked away, disclosing the incident to your parents so that proper medical and psychological help could be sought. It's very tragic when adults profit and take advantage of the situation with children. Not only should they know better, but it can and does destroy the child's future. Please, I urge you, if you were abused as a child, seek some professional help, because you can get your life back on track. If you are a person with pedophilic tendencies, seek counselling, even if you know that your therapist is obliged to mention your actions to law enforcement agents. Thank you for listening to Soul Searching here on Gay SA Radio. Your comments and suggestions help shape the show and I'm always happy to receive them. Write to me at studio at gaysaradio.co.za or post on the station's social media platforms using the hashtag GaySARadio. This program premieres on Sundays at 5pm and repeats the following Sunday at 8am. A full set of podcasts in the series is available on the station's website, gaysaradio.co.za. My name is Tom Budge. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>